When Jesus said he is the, the way, he, he means I am the way less traveled. He means I am the other way. That there is a way that most people are going and I am the other way. Remember, he said, broad is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction, but small is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. it it's, there it is. It's that other way. So throughout the Gospel of Luke, while Jesus is teaching, uh, people are noticing this and they're following him, and they're following him in mass and he has a habit every time that he collects a large audience of going down another way. He'll either say something or do something that leaves a lot of people off at the pass. So in Luke chapter 9, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. It's an Old Testament colloquialism. Many first century Jews would have known what he meant by this. It means simply that when he turned and looked at Jerusalem, he was determined to go. The same phrase is used of Jacob, for instance, Old Testament. When he set his face to go to Gilead, he left in the middle of the night. He just picked stuff up, didn't tell everybody, just set out and went as fast as he could, as hard as he could toward Gilead. Jeremiah uses the phrase eight different times. He's setting his face towards a country or a city, and when he does it, it means his mind is made up, and he's now going to look at the city, and he's going to speak directly to the city, and you can't change his mind. It's that kind of determination. So when Luke says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, he means he was determined to go, and he would not be deterred. Now the crowd would find him as he was moving toward Jerusalem, but every time they found him, he, it's like he created a divergence. He did something or he said something that intentionally would go in a different direction so that most of the crowd had a decision to make. You either go the way that he's going or you stay on the way that you're on. But the way that you're on is not the way that he's going. He just hung a right or he just hung a left and you're still going straight. There's a divergence there. So when Jesus starts teaching, he is always creating a divergence. But it's not a divergence of morality. It's a divergence of of reality. He's not saying, I am right and they are wrong. See, you're still thinking in moral terms. Religious people like to think in moral terms. Is it right? Is it wrong? Can I still do this and be a Christian? And what are Christians supposed to do? Those are moral questions. But what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the way, is he was talking about what I think what C.S. Lewis called the Tao. He called it a doctrine of objective reality. It's the idea that there are things in this world that are really true and some things are really false. That is, they're contrary to the way that the world goes. So when Jesus said, I am the way, he didn't mean I'm right and they're wrong. He meant this way works and that way doesn't. If you think my way is hard... Try the other one for a long period of time. It'll beat the life out of you. Ultimately, my way is easy. My yoke is easy. It just seems hard right now. So to 
uh, not follow Jesus as the way doesn't make you a heretic. It makes you a fool. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. Other things can do that. It means some hell is going to come into you. Because if you take another way, you're kicking against the way that the world is formed. And you'll feel that later on. So even if you're right about Jesus, the truth, everything you think about Jesus is true, you'll still be miserable if you don't follow Jesus the way. I think this is where a lot of Christians are, isn't it? They got all the truth in their head, but their lives are still miserable because they have not truly believed that what he's saying about life is right. This way actually works. So throughout the Gospel of Luke, you'll hear stories about Jesus traveling on the way. I put a few of them on the screen. You know the story, for instance, of the three disciples that came up to Jesus and, and they said, we'll follow you wherever you go, right? And Luke says, that didn't just happen. That happened on the way. It says in Luke chapter 10, when they went into Mary and Martha's house, you know the story. Some of you do, Martha, Martha, you are upset about many things. That didn't just happen. Luke says it happened while they were on the way to Jerusalem. The same thing's true in several passages. I think there's seven or eight passages. I put them up there. All of these stories that you're familiar with. You know the story of Zacchaeus and the parable of the, of the, the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector and the children coming to Jesus and the man that was born blind and all these stories. They didn't just happen randomly. Luke says they happened while he was on the way to Jerusalem. Now, this is important because in discipleship as in life, the lesson does not come when you get the diploma. You don't come to Jesus and he just hands you a diploma and you're a disciple. It's like coming to school. If you check into college as a freshman, you want to be a nurse, then we're going to stick you in a bunch of classes you probably won't like. And in your mind, what you're thinking is, I don't need all this stuff. I just want to heal people. But if you don't learn anatomy <laughs> and you don't pass chemistry, you will not be healing people. You will be making the situation Worse, we do this with preachers all the time. We teach them how to study scripture. There's a right and wrong way to get right. And they'll say, I just want to preach. We're like, of all people, you should not preach. Man, you're operating with a butter knife. Someone's going to get hurt, you know. If, if you want to get the diploma, then you have to learn the material on the way to the diploma. Because what it takes to be a nurse is packed into the classes on the way to the penny. Ordination is not a certificate. It's a process of learning how to understand Scripture, how to manage a church organization. And you don't learn that when they hand you the certificate. You learn it in the classes you don't like on the way. So every time you think you're trying to get through something, that's actually the thing you need 
There, I've just helped a lot of provosts and deans and whatever. So the way to follow Jesus, the way to be a disciple, is not something Jesus just calls you. You don't know all of this on the day you become a disciple. You have to learn it by following him and remember, remember, no, remember, he always is hanging a left or a right. And the rest of the world keeps right on going. This is an overarching narrative for me because it means that whenever the world catches on to something and, they, and it sounds like something that the scripture also embraces. I start looking for ways in which Jesus' way is still different yet. Tozer used to say, my theory is this, all the world is wrong until God sets it right. <laughs> That's an old-fashioned kind of way of saying, even when it's popular, there may still be a brand of it that Jesus is pulling off to another direction. Follow him. And that raises a very complex subject this morning because the first stop along the way in Jesus' journey is into Samaria. And here he confronts our prejudice. Maybe a few preliminary comments. I am not good at this, but I am called by my occupation to speak on it, and so I'm going to try. Prejudice, if I understand the word right, is an old French word borrowed from medieval Latin in the 1300s that literally means to judge beforehand. Usually negatively. So prejudice is not racism. Racism is a form of prejudice. But there is a kind of prejudice that does not focus on race it focuses on other things. Now, this is an important distinction because I think in our culture today, we have made prejudice the same thing as racism. And when we do that, it feels like some generations are more guilty than other generations. Older generations that grew up where racial prejudice was practiced and endorsed are somehow more culpable than younger generations who grew up in a more diverse era. But if prejudice is a larger thing than just racism, then there are forms of prejudice out there that are not connected to race. This is why it doesn't always solve the problem to say, well, Steve, how many minorities do you have as friends? Well, if prejudice were all about minorities, that would be a spot-on question. But since it's possible to have lots of friends as minorities and still be prejudiced, I haven't really answered the question yet. It's more specific than that. So if I'm understanding it right, if you're prejudiced, you probably don't know it. Every other person knows it, 
but you don't know it. Have you talked to somebody with headphones on listening to rock music? And they always talk too loud in <laughs> the room. <laughs> and, and they don't know it, you know. They think they're talking at the normal decibel, but they're talking really loud because they're hearing stuff through the headphones and all they can hear is the rock music, but they can't hear uh, what they're sounding like. And so the people in the room know how they sound, but the person... Them so if a person is prejudiced, it's because they've got headphones on their ears and somebody is telling them a narrative and all they can hear is that narrative. And because it's so unpopular to think of oneself as prejudiced today, it's like being the devil, you know, then you, you simply, you put the, no, 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 not at all. But, but other people know it, but we don't know it. I mean, it might be that prejudice is a little bit like pride. William Law said, consider yourself humble only so far as you insist on humility within yourself, but never from someone else. The reason, or the way to know one is proud, he said, is to, is, is to know how, um, how disgusting you think proud people are. It's probably the surest evidence that you have a little of it yourself. And so prejudice may be a little bit like that when I see it in other people, but I do not see it in myself, I may have some of it. And I wouldn't know it. I have the headphones on. I'm hearing the same narrative day after day. And it sounds right to me which leads to another preliminary comment. These are all preliminary. That if you are prejudiced, uh, it's probably not because you want to be. It's because someone or something has told you a story. Someone, and, and can I just pointed out, the people who did this don't hate other people. They love you. And the reason we draw boundaries in our lives is to separate people we love from things that we think will hurt them. It's why your parents had rules. It's why they said you shouldn't date certain kinds of people. It's why they said you shouldn't go there and you shouldn't watch that and you shouldn't listen. They love you. And so they said, these are boundaries. And if you cross that boundary, it could be bad for you. So what happens in our prejudice is people who love us deeply are informing us with boundaries. They're explaining how the world world is divided and they're afraid that we will get too close to the world if we start going across those boundaries. It's not because we want it, it's because we are creatures of our culture. Which leads to the last preliminary conversation observation. Is that you cannot then get over your prejudice just because you're supposed to. It is so unpopular to consider oneself prejudiced in today's volatile environment that first of all, we won't admit it. And then if someone ever does, the idea is that it's so wrong, you should just stop it. <laughs> 
and you can't because you have the headphones on and all you hear is the same story, the same boundaries, same rules. So Jesus speaks into our prejudice. He goes right into a city called Samaria. And in this Samaritan city, um, filled with Samaritans, he had to know that he, a Jew, was not welcome there. And it is shocking to me that he goes anyway. See, there was this long-standing conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, and you might recognize some of, the, some of the symptoms of it. It depended on which side you talked to as to who started the conflict. So if you talk to a Samaritan, he would say, well, the reason we're different now is because in the 11th century B.C., when the Israelites became apostate, that when they hung a left, we held the line. We are the remnant people, the descendants of Abraham, the worshipers of Yahweh. The temple belongs in Gerizim, and they polluted it. They stole it, and they moved it to Shiloh, and then they moved it to Jerusalem. They got it wrong. We are the ones that God intended. But if you talk to the Jews, the Jews would say, there you go again. What happened was, when the Assyrians transported Babylonians, pagans, Gentiles, they moved them into Jewish cities, and they started marrying with Jews, which means the children they had were half-breeds. They were half-Jew and half-Gentile, and so what a Samaritan is, it's neither. It's not even a person. So they can't vote. They can't come into the temple. They don't belong in any courtroom. We have no place for a word from a Samaritan. They're a non-person. So they set up two different kinds of worship. This is odd. They're both worshiping the same God, but they're worshiping in different churches, in tribal churches. <laughs> and each one is telling jokes about the other one. They have labels for one another. And they're having children. And they're telling children the narrative. They're saying, put the headphones on. Let me tell you what happened here. Those children across the street there, those are half-breeds. You don't belong in that kind of a thing. You're one of us. And the other kids got headphones on, and they're saying, here's who you are. You are the genuine followers of Yahweh, and those are the apostate. Don't go near those kids, because if you do, they will lead you astray. Do you see what's happening? And this is happening over seven and eight hundred years. And so when Jesus walks into a Samaritan city, and they find out he's going to Jerusalem, man, their temple was in Gerizim. They were thinking, if you were going to Gerizim, we would say, come on in. But as it is, you're going to Jerusalem. You're one of them. That's who you are. We know who you are by where you're going. You see it? There are boundaries here. So we can be clear about this. Most of the narrative that Christians tell in Christian churches is the Jewish narrative. And our tendency is to read this story and identify 
either as a Jew or as a Samaritan. And it does not allow us to back up and look at it objectively and say, what is happening here? And people, what's happening here is bigger than Jesus becoming friends with a couple Samaritans. What Jesus is doing is nothing less than changing the boundaries. He's changing the boundaries. He's taken the headphones off the ears of his disciples. They come into a Samaritan village and they won't let Jesus, the Messiah, can we be clear about this? They were wrong about this. They were wrong about this. But he does not react like they would. They come into the village and when they find out that he can't come in, the Jews are thinking like Jews. They said, this has happened before, you know. When Elijah was not welcome with the Samaritans, you know what he did? He called down fire, burned them all. I, I'm not making this up. It happened in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. A Samaritan king sent 50 soldiers to get Elijah. And Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and burn every one of you guys. Bam! Just like that. All 50 of them fried. Word got back to the king. King sent a second squadron of 50 people. Said, we'll try that again. And when they went back the second time, Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down and burn every one of you. Bam! It burned another 50. So there's 100 people dead plus two captains. Third time. This is not a joke. Third time it came back. The third messenger went back with his head in his hand and basically said, you know, I'm sort of thinking that maybe you are a man of God. would like to humbly invite you to see the king. <laughs> so when the disciples, with that rich history, they're thinking, baby, this is Elijah the sequel. So if they don't accept us, we know what to do. So let us just call down fire from heaven. But they don't realize that Jesus went into the village to start with because he intended to change the borders. He was moving the borders. Can I be clear about this? There are still boundaries, but they are not where you think they are. There are still boundaries, but they are not where your mom and dad told you they were. There are boundaries. One of the things I worry about our culture right now is we're so afraid of intolerance that we have no boundaries. We're afraid of being judgmental that we've become undiscerning of things. There are still things that can hurt society. Things that are not true, good, or beautiful. Things that take away from life, they don't add to it. Things that decrease value, they don't improve it. Things that hurt people, they're not sustainable. Those things still exist, and there should be boundaries, or the whole of society is lost. But the boundaries are not where you think they are. There are people who belong in our body are not here because of boundaries. And there are places in our city where you won't go because of boundaries. There's friends you won't keep and restaurants you won't eat at because of boundaries. And I'm telling you this morning, what Jesus is doing is changing the boundaries. They are not where you think they are. 
And what happens in a culture like this, because nobody thinks they're prejudiced, we never really get over our boundaries. We just move them. You used to tell African-American jokes, but now you tell redneck jokes, and those are still funny. It used to be homosexuals, wasn't it? Until it wasn't popular. Now it's pedophiles. Well, who on earth? Well, see, that's what we said about another class of people. So, so you're telling me we just accept no. You're missing the point. The point is, that's not who you are. So you don't draw your boundaries where everybody else draws their boundaries. I have two questions for you this morning. Here's the first one. Who are your Samaritans? You have them. I bet. Me? My problem isn't so much with um, ethnicities. I'm not so worried about how someone looks. I'm worried about how they act. There's, there's, there's people I don't like because of the way they act. And I got the headphones on. And the moment I'm in a room and someone starts acting like that, the headphones say, stay away from that person because that just leads to trouble. I think sometimes we struggle in this congregation because one of the boundaries is, is education. So it isn't, it, isn't, uh, it isn't what color a person is or where they came from. It's are they smart or not. I'm standing over in the Circle K over here about a year or two ago and waiting to pay and all of a sudden this guy in front of me turns around and says, wait, you that television preacher? Gosh, I hate when that happens. <laughs> I said, I'm one of them, and, um, but I don't want any money. <laughs> um, and uh, he says, I watch you all the time. He says, that makes a lot of sense. I said, thank you, sir turns around to pay. He waits about 30 seconds. Then he turns around again and he says, I'm as smart as those college people. I said, at least. It's a different kind of intelligence, sir. You're at least as smart as that. Do you see what he's doing? He's reacting to a boundary. Because he knows they're there. He feels the strain of it. The pressure of not making the grade. I think we have them. And again, if you have it, you might not know it. Other people might. So the question you have to ask yourself in the first question is, are there 
Are there Samaritans around me that I keep sending off a signal? God, it is not my intent, but I would be the last one to know this. Are people hearing something, seeing something that... And they're getting that message. And one more time, please do not hide. Please do not hide behind the minority card. That is only one strand of racism, or rather of prejudice. Only one strand of prejudice. There are many others. Can I turn the subject a minute? I promise I'll get you out of here in time. I want to tell you the rest of the story. Uh, what Jesus said to them when Bob jumped up and said, you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them? Remember, there's precedence for this. It says Jesus turned and rebuked them. But if you read your footnotes in your Bible, it says some manuscripts say, you'll love this phrase, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives he came to save them. Now, I was taught as a young preacher never to preach on a text that everyone didn't agree was in the Bible. But I figured since I've broken every other rule they taught me, I might as well break this one. I, I, I can at least say that the evidence is as far back as the second century. So it's less than 100 years after the gospel was written, it already appears in some of the manuscripts. That's not proof, but it's a pretty good argument. I've been arrested, church, by this phrase, you don't know what spirit you were of. Because what the disciples wanted to do was to refer to a former prejudice. They wanted to draw the boundary and say, we're not going to go into the Samaritan city. And Jesus did not say to them, no, no, you belong where the Samaritans are. He said something that is bigger than this. He said, you don't know what spirit you were of. You have the right spirit, but you don't know that you were of that spirit. You are talking like you are of another spirit. Because you do not know what spirit you were of. My concern in our culture today is that the arguments have become so volatile and the sides have become so deeply divided and the divisions more historically divided than ever before. That we are framing the argument in contrarian ways. We are allowing a society to frame the argument of prejudice for us. Do you know how many times someone has asked me whether I support or don't support Black Lives Matter? I refuse to have the culture determine the argument for me. I always feel like them saying to me, have you stopped beating your wife yet? How do you answer that? You say, yes? You mean you used to? There's no good answer. 
So the argument from the very beginning is framed as if it were exactly that, an argument. But what I hear Jesus saying is, you do not know what spirit you are of. He is not saying you don't know what argument you are of. So what we have is people holding to arguments while the spirit of the nation and even of the church is divided. And I have a problem with that. This is not a call for justice. And this is not a call for equal rights. Those are positions, and I support both of them. But I can fight for justice and not love people. I can want equal rights without loving people. And sometimes my passion for justice hurts people because I think I'm right, I'm so right that I'm just willing to mow people over because of it. And so even when I win the argument, I lose the friend because I am arguing from an argument and not from a spirit. And I hear Jesus saying to Jews who want to call down fire from heaven, I hear him saying, I know they're mistreating you. I know they've been wrong to you. But you are to treat them for what is in you, not what is in them. Act according to what is in you, not what is in them. You will always justify yourself if you start with what somebody else did to you and think they deserve the good beating you're... No. You know the story of... Uh, well, maybe you don't. Um, Solomon, wise Solomon, King Solomon, right? There's a story in the Old Testament where two mothers come to Solomon with one baby and both of them say, this is my baby. And Solomon has heard both arguments. And after he hears the arguments, he says, here's what we'll do. We'll take a saw, we'll cut the baby in half. And we'll give half to the first mother and half to the second one. And when he says it, the first mother shouts out, Neither I nor you shall have that baby. Cut him in half. And the second mother, overcome by the spirit of a mother, says, Let it live. Give the baby to the other woman. I would rather she have it than to see that child die. And Solomon says, You're the mother. How does he know this? Is it because she had a better argument? No, because in that moment, a mother's spirit has come forth, not her argument. And when the king sees the spirit, he says, who the real mother is, is the second question. Who has the spirit of a mother? That's the one this child should go home with. I think what's happening in our culture right now is we have leaders in every capacity who are almost willing to cut the nation in half. They're willing to cut the church in half or they'll cut the schools in half if only they can have it their way. And I hear another voice saying, no, 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 no. I still think I'm right, but I would rather lose this argument. Let the other ones have it before we lose the nation. That is the mother. 
My question for some of you is not about your argument. I know you have strong positions on prejudice. I know this because you write them on Facebook. We all know where you stand. Our problem is not with your argument. Our problem is with your spirit. Do you love the church? Don't tell me how much you hate injustice. Tell me how many of the oppressed you know. Do you know how many times people in our church have come to me in the last two months and said, I want to talk to you, Steve, about this thing about immigrant connection. This is my standard reply now. Name three. Tell me three that you know want in and can't get in. And then we'll talk about your position. It is not your position. It is your soul people want. Let me tell you my position on Black Lives Matter. That's irrelevant to me. Tell me how many black lives are you mentoring and how many are mentoring you. How many are in your life right now speaking into your life? Then we can talk about a position. We have allowed ourselves because of our culture to identify with positions and not with a body. And my worry for us is that we who have different gifts, drinking from one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4, all baptized into one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, will forget the spirit we were baptized in. We belong to each other, church. Warts and all. So my second question this morning is what is your spirit? What's in your spirit? Is it a spirit of peace or is it contrarian? This has nothing to do with your position, you understand. You can be right about your position, but if your spirit is wrong, it can hurt. So I've given you two questions this morning, heaven I. The first is, who are the Samaritans? Who are the people that, that you, you think you know and on the other side of the boundaries and, and where is God in, I mean if you want to do you know we talked as a staff or a few of us did about this and, and I mean I got the typical ideas where people were saying well why don't we ask um, one of those people to come into our home which I think is a great place to start but it might be just that a start ideally it would be that, that they would ask us into their house <laughs> but see if we don't know them well enough and the trust quotient isn't high enough, that can't happen. So this might take a while, but maybe you could start saying, Lord, who are people that I I tend to really steer clear of? And how do I show me this week, the hour and the place, that moment where I tend to pull away, that you want me to lean in and speak in and, and, and learn how to love them? And the second question 
um, is what, what, what spirit are you of? So you don't ask. My position on Black Lives Matter is God is teaching me how to love people. You say you're not answering the yes I did. I just answered the question. This is not about a position. This is about a spirit. And this morning, this morning, I think I heard the Lord say, you have a long way to go, but I like your direction. You have a lot to learn, but I like the posture of your heart. 